Choreography, making dance, isn't usually a young person's game. Especially in classical ballet, it's a side hustle. Something you develop alongside your dancing career, which if you're lucky, later becomes your main gig. I'm David Jays, and today on Why Dance Matters, we're meeting Charlotte Edmonds. She plunged into professional choreography while still a teenager and has navigated a varied and tasty freelance career, often making her own creative opportunities. Why Dance Matters is the Royal Academy of Dance podcast and the RAD spotted Charlotte's talent for making dance very early on when she was just 18. She had trained at the Royal Ballet School and Rombert, but choreography was clearly her gift and passion. She was the Royal Ballet's inaugural young choreographer, and she was commissioned choreographer for the RAD's Genet International Ballet Competition in 2015. I remember seeing dozens of talented young dancers perform Charlotte's solos at the Genet, spiky, and lyrical, the solos challenged the dancers but gave them a chance to shine. Charlotte has continued to make all kinds of work, often on the cusp of classical and contemporary dance. She's also the founder of Cameo, a series of dialogues with female and non-binary dance makers, and drawing on her own experience with dyslexia, she co-founded Move Beyond Words to amplify the voices of artists with dyslexia. I look forward to hearing what such a varied freelance career feels like from the inside. It's a very hot day. All praise the aircon in the RAD's dance studio. But Charlotte has arrived looking super cool. Let's get started. Charlotte, it is very lovely to be here at the RAD with you. I was reading um, lots of stuff before we met today, and one of the things I was reading was this really lovely quote from Alessandra Ferry, one of great, great, great ballerinas of the last several decades, talking about working with you, how calm you were, how clear your ideas were, and how confident you were. And I'm just wondering... Where does that come from? Has that always been something you've had, that confidence? I think when you're working with Alessandra Ferry, I probably had a massive deep breath before walking into the studio and then thought, right, be confident. Look like you know what you're doing. (laughs) And I just wanted to ensure that she felt like she was in a really safe space and that she had confidence within me. So I think I probably stepped into a character (laughs) at that point in my career. I think I was just counting my blessings on and enjoying the rehearsal and the moment of working with her. I think confidence comes with each process because actually, obviously, you come against so many obstacles and challenges. So in some ways, I feel now confident in like a process because I know a structure that I really like to work in or the learning styles and methods that I bring into the studio. So that instills confidence. Actually, thinking back, I don't know. Um, I I wonder if it's also (laughs) the confidence of someone who 
staged a big tap number for their grandparents' wedding anniversary at an early age. <laughs> yes, my, oh gosh, I remember for my nan and papa's anniversary, I grabbed my cousin and I was like, let's do a tap dance because she's also in the arts, she's an actor. But we were so young and I feel like my older sister just was like, oh no, here she goes again. I kind of was quite quiet when I was younger. I think the arts and dance was where I felt most confidence. Of course, I'd be like, yeah, let's go do a performance and a tap dance and or like grab my cousins and siblings at Christmas. And I was like, let's do a nativity play. Thank goodness I don't do that anymore. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> but at the time, it just, I think that was where I got so much enjoyment and creativity and just, I suppose, the early choreographer within me as a child. No family gathering was safe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. Thankfully that, you know, they're still really lovely to me. <laughs> I haven't burnt too many bridges with my cousins. Was it partly performing was, was the appeal when you started dancing and experiencing the arts? Was that that sense of sort of sharing it and communicating it? Yes. I mean, my mum is an absolute champion and the way I got into dance was she she was working really early hours, really late hours, and she works in education. There was a local dance school called Elite Dance Works that housed classes within the school that I went to and luckily had classes late in the evening. So she was like, are you up for trying it out? And I was like, yeah, this sounds great. So I remember going to my first class and the performative aspect definitely was exhilarating. And I think it was ISTD Modern, so something I don't do now, but there was something that I fell in love with about that kind of style. The most memorable moment was at the end of the class, the teacher, Miss Haley, she put on a piece of music and was like, right, start moving and improvising. And so, you know, now I'm a professional choreographer and still do that. You know, you still put a piece of music on and you walk into a space and you improvise. I suppose also when you're doing that kind of responding to a piece of music in your own way, it's the early stirrings of choreography as well, even if you don't realise that that's what you're doing. Totally. I think that's where I always begin. Even recently, I've been working with poetry and just writing out some phrases based on the concept that I'm working on. Um, but I always go, right, I need some music now. It just pushes my body to think a little bit differently, especially if you've, you're making and you know what your kind of habits are or what your go-to is. And if you put a completely different piece of music on at 10am and then another at 12, it's really fascinating to record it and watch back and see how that has instigated something within you. You kind of gather an album of, of music that helps you create choreography. You can create in silence. Well, that's really interesting using your body tapping or breathing. But there's something really rich in being inspired by someone else's work. And is that still how you start when a piece? Is it, does it tend to be you in a room with the music moving yourself before you bring that to the other dancers? Yes, absolutely. I think if I sit still too much, my body will seize up and you just you just don't feel capable enough to create what you want to create so it's so important I've learned this the hard way to keep moving and I now book in a studio space twice a week for a couple of hours to give myself that space to create beforehand and almost kind of create an internal archive or file of of movement to then bring out I am definitely a research artist I love 
big topics and researching a lot before I even start moving. But at the same time, if I research too much, you think, how am I going to portray this through movement? And you can bring in other artistic elements, but at the end of the day, the core element is dance. So I kind of stop that research process and then start physicalizing. And they go, yeah, okay, this starts to fit. Is it reading? Does that look like that? It means it's kind of second nature when you're working with the dancers. You can really select the information that they need to know within the time frame that you're working I might have been researching for two years and then I have two weeks to work with them so like this is what you need to know <laughs> right oh and so all the information comes you're you are the walking encyclopedia of yes. that piece yeah yeah I hope so I really enjoy kind of note-taking and at the moment I'm trying to find myself this language or this kind of alphabet and um, working with an assistant actually and it's the first point in my career that I have someone in the studio with me and it's so fascinating to hear someone else go yeah I can see that's what you're trying to do or record it or note things down and I go did I say that and she's like yeah no you did say that so it's really helpful to have sort of like a memory bank at the end of the research and development session for myself before going into a commission or even if it's funded by myself it's a really great way to lay everything down and be that encyclopedia (laughs) going back again yeah at the same time as you were making those early discoveries in dance school and loving it and relishing it of course you had normal academic school We're going to talk in a bit about Move Beyond Words, which is an amazing initiative you've founded for artists with dyslexia. And I'm wondering what that side of school was like for you. What kind of impact did that have on you? Well, it's interesting. I was talking to a Rumba School third year recently as they were doing their dissertation on dyslexia within the studio and adapting to situations and also stepping into a professional career. She asked me what was the difference between primary school, essentially, White Lodge, the Royal Ballet School, and Rumba. And I was like, well, it was the class sizes. Because at White Lodge, for example, speaking of academics, I went from maybe 100 people in my year to there's 12 girls, 12 boys. And I was in second set, so that's probably about seven people in that set. So I was so exposed, and even though I was really shy and didn't want to be, my teachers were fantastic in getting me to the front of the class and always asking me questions and putting me out of my comfort zone and making sure I was speaking up. If you have dyslexia, you do become quite shy and worried that you're going to get the answer wrong, and that stops you. And So I think that's really important that they did that. I now, after having done a master's at Central School of Ballet, that was something I really wanted to do to kind of prove myself that I could do something academic. But if I look back at the young self, that felt like such a mission. I I think because of experiences within school, it's like you try your best and best and best and then you might get a C. You're like, God, I felt like I should have got an A in that. (laughs) And that's particularly for me, that was maths and English. But all the other art forms that we did, like we did expressive arts and music. And, you know, I love doing GCSE music. There's all these things that you really can latch onto that, you know, will fuel you and help you in your career, especially if you're going into the arts. You know, I look back at all my contemporaries at 
the schools that I went to and they're you know so successful in what they do because of the rigorous training and the discipline so even if they didn't go into the arts they're absolutely excelling in their fields so it was really beautiful actually to also be in a class with lots of different people because in some ways going from the school before that the primary school with his first second third set youth also far removed from one another whereas kind of if you're bundled together (laughs) you know it's really important to have different abilities within one space it feels less isolating I suppose and it must have been quite an extraordinary environment in all sorts of ways Mm -hmm. going away from home and being just immersed in in that White Lodge Royal Ballet School experience and then you were it's such a weird phrase in a way assessed out is 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 that right? Is that what they? It's- I was yeah. So I was at White Lodge for five years, and then you audition for secondary schools. So I wasn't assessed out, but they do assess you every single year to stay in. And that must be. I mean, that must be so hard if you're going to be even anywhere near that that level. You've worked so hard. You've been so focused. You you have to be so dedicated. And at a very young age to be told that you might not make it, was it done nicely? <laughs> were, there, were, were your other options explained or are you just kind of thrown back out into the cruel world? If you've decided at the age of 11 that you want to train to be a dancer or any other kind of profession, you've made such a sacrifice at such an early age. So at that point, I think I sort of had blinkers on and thought, right, the next five years, my aim is to stay at the Royal Ballet School tick (laughs) achieve what I can and I progress so much as a person and then when we get to the next point let's assess that there I fell in love with choreography from year seven so at that time I really wasn't worried about options it was more so looking at capacity to evolve and where I wanted to focus my interests and at that point I had won some of the internal choreographic competitions and had opportunities within the school to choreograph. And my focus turned more to creating choreography, but I was still very passionate about dancing. So going to Romba was a really perfect opportunity to explore new genres of dance, progress in contemporary dance, as well as continue with my ballet training. And there was just so much to learn from still. When I think about my other friends who are, some people did an extended course or they might last five years and then you're in your early 20s and you're like, what should I do? At the age of 14, it's a lot of pressure to kind of make a decision. But I hope that since I've been there, that there's a lot of nurturing if people are assessed out really early because yeah, it's, it's really not easy with, with young people. One of the other things that Alessandra Ferry said, um, oh, yeah. it's a really good quote, was, <laughs> <laughs> was about how, again, at, early in your career, what a distinctive choreographic voice you had. Again, how did that develop? Did it, When you started making work, did it already feel very much yours, your own voice? I hope so. I think when I was at school, any free opportunity I had, I would go into the studio and put a piece of music on and start improvising. And from there, I suppose the origin of your body will inform the language of your movement. So if you base your style essentially off that, I think it's really interesting to kind of see 
how you move and then how it's imprinted onto someone else. So I do feel like at that point, it's really nice to hear that. I felt very much like I was um, evolving. I think I remember asking Robert Cohen when we were doing the Cohen Collective in 2015, I was like, how did you find your style? And he was like, oh, Charlie, please give yourself a break and some time. Because I think as you grow up, you do obviously go and watch performances and you recognize someone's choreographic vocabulary and you think, okay, what is mine? What is mine? It really is a evolving that's why it's really important to document and to archive because if I look back at probably the 14 15 year old self like am I still moving in that way and what has been retained and what changes because obviously your body changes as you grow so I don't physically grow because <laughs> I'm so short and also it's really good to test there's lots of different tasks and exercises that you can do to yourself and explore like how that can kind of push you in different directions and also working with different people if there's someone that you think oh well you're really executing something that I've had in my mind and that's it that's it so that also influences yourself and you think what do I like about that and you can really step back and view it not on yourself but on someone else. It's also about communicating that, about sharing that, about running the room. Are you coached or mentored in those skills or do you just have to kind of blunder through and pick them up as you go along? I think it's the kind of inter and intrapersonal skills, right? (laughs) You know that you have to get a sense of the room and it depends who you're working with. You could be working with a junior company who are really hungry and they're ready. They, they have so much energy and I want to empower that and give them confidence. And I do think a lot about how I'm going to enter a space. And it's very different if you're working with an individual for a film, for example. It's way more intimate and you're looking at various different details that are much more close up and there's not a whole room of people say like I'm always asking do you need a break how are you finding that and it's really important to me I think obviously with Move Beyond Words we look at a way of being within the studio and how if you are neurodivergent what accessibility needs does that person need and just making it an everyday thing so I always want to apply that to my own process not explain it just let it be embedded within me and walk in and hopefully give the dancers space to retain information space to ask questions and anything that I can do to help that's really important to me that it is a 360 feedback and feeling because hopefully then when you work together again you've got that kind of common ground and that foundation to continue moving forward with. Your first main contact with the RAD was choreographing solos for the Genet International Ballet Competition in 2015. Yeah. Um, Which is quite an unusual commission in a way because it's two solos, but they're danced by all the candidates. So 50, 60, I don't know how many it was, dancers will have, will be dancing one solo for. Uh, young men, one for young women. What was that like? Because that's a teaching experience, it's a coaching experience, it's a creative experience, and then it's seeing the work come back at you in dozens of different bodies. How, how was that? Amazing. I think that was one of my first opportunities 
outside of school with rumba. I think it was just before I joined the Royal Ballet. And I remember talking to Lynn Wallace about pitching for the role. And Lynn Wallace was the artistic director of yes. the RAD, we should say. She was absolutely fantastic. It was like, you know, I was sweating, basically, sort of making sure that she felt like I was the right person at that point to be working with the young professionals. And, you know, that was actually my first and only work on Sadler's Wells main stage. So it's huge. Yeah, it's a huge moment. Uh, and, And something I really look back on with fond memories. You spoke about the process there. I think having such hungry young dancers in a space learning choreography it was so special actually that is a huge aspect of a competition that you obviously see the end product on stage but to be in the space is a huge valid part of assessing someone in a competition in my opinion even though I wasn't a judge and I wish I was because (laughs) I got to see so much and and how friendly people were or open and that these are all characteristics and kind of skills that you need in a space but the actual kind of choreography it was really important because I knew that there's uh, so many dancers I wanted to give them something that showed versatility and character and their their skill but also to leave space for them to add their own own imprint on it because that's also something really special when you see someone take a piece of choreography and really elevate it especially within a competition I remember Leroy was the winner fantastic wasn't he he was amazing tiny South African dancer but with probably not now (laughs) probably not now I think he was one of the youngest yeah Competitors, wasn't he? And but just so precise, I remember. Yes, and I think that was that's also the beauty within a competition is that you really do get to shine the light on someone yeah. at that point in their career, and and that's a, such a special thing to come out of the Genet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things, Charlotte, that has happened through your really quite short career, (laughs) short yet packed career, is that it's also been the years in which people have noticed that there really aren't quite enough female choreographers on our main stages working with major companies. And the question, where are the women, I think you said, is one that sort of dogged you through even that short period of time. And one of the ways in which you responded to that is by setting up Cameo, which is a series of events and discussions with women and non-binary artists to talk about what that experience is so that perhaps soon we don't have to ask that question. But I mean, it must be quite odd to both be in the middle of that movement and also have observed the relative lack of role models when you were starting out, I guess. Yes, I definitely had role models. Yolanda Yorkagel was one of them and gave me my first opportunity. And I actually interviewed Yolanda for the first cameo event, which was incredibly special and a perfect place to start and just highlight the opportunity and the leg up that she gave me a woman supporting another woman. And that was at White Lodge, the Royal Ballet School. 
I can't remember how long ago. But I remember writing to the Dancing Times, actually. But I remember in the letter that I wrote in, just sort of saying, yes, I can see that there's a lack of representation for female choreographers and I'm really passionate about it. But, you know, I think I was like 16, saying yes, yes, yes. You know, I'm, I'm really supportive of women. I'm a woman. But in September 2023, I actually would have been choreographing for 10 years. So I have had a lot of time to observe. And when I first started at the Opera House as their inaugural choreographer, I was a part of conversations, but I was so early on in my career and, you know, have to acknowledge that there are many female voices and artists that have been creating work before then. And I could only see that there was a lot of people bruised and disheartened maybe lost a lot of confidence in what they thought, you know, is their passion and art form based around opportunity. So it's really important to kind of look at the facts, essentially. Only 32% of global resident choreographers are women, and that is a financially secure position and choreographic post, which just shows that a lot of women are freelance, which is, you know, has its own challenges and obstacles. And if you're thinking about rent you need to kind of support yourself and give yourself capacity to be creative and to create the work that you envisage and dream about and I think at that point I wanted to make choreography I wanted to grow up (laughs) I wanted to push myself and now I'm at a point where it's been 10 years and I thought okay if not a lot has changed is there something that I can do, which is Cameo? And it really is, like you said, a a space for role models for people who want to hear about female and non-binary artist experiences, particularly choreographers, but also art forms within that sphere or professions associated with the arts. And for me, I'm also really fascinated with what people's processes are like and the challenges and obstacles that they face and how they've overcome them and I have had the good fortune of observing incredible choreographers like Wayne McGregor and Crystal Pite and that's really special and I feel a little bit selfish if I bottle that up and keep that all to myself because I realise how much of an impact that had on me and how much that's fueled my creative process, my interests, way of being. So Cameo's a conversational series of events, both live and digital, and there is also going to be an extension of that to have a hybrid of both, where I get to talk to some inspiring figures, hear about their methods of working, their experiences, maybe even their personal life and how that's fueled their professional life and just kind of give those voices a platform. And what's quite special is that um, as part of the conversation, particularly in the digital, I'll be choreographing with them. So I'm going to choreograph a short duet. And so hopefully it's really exciting. (laughs) And so hopefully... It also shares an aspect of a process of people collaborating and ideas forming together. So that's a really special aspect of, of the conversation. And especially in the classical world, choreography is typically something that people come to at the end of their dancing careers. It must be quite exciting for young dancers to see you still in your 20s. Yes. And you know, with almost <laughs> a decade of professional experience behind you, that's that—that that must be quite an exciting 
thing for them to see as well. I hope so. I think, yeah, it's a slightly different part, actually. And now I am making more work on myself because it's important to continue doing that. Also to have it just as like a reference of how do you move (laughs) and watch it back. So I am creating more performative work on myself, but I hope that people do have an openness to what career they want to go down and that you don't have to have a professional dance career before being a choreographer because they are they do go hand in hand but they are very different at the same time so yes but it is early days still (laughs) (laughs) but that's also really inspiring that was what was lovely to talk to Yolanda about because Yolanda is an artistic director a choreographer a dancer and she still dances and I I think she's in her 50s. So I hope that I can still keep moving and and that people also feel inspired to move. And also anyone, even if you're not in the arts, if you're thinking about having a turn of career or thinking if you're a choreographer wanting to be an artistic director, like how do you make those jumps? And that's why it's also really fascinating to hear from these voices is because I did start my career in choreography, but hopefully people can also see that there's different avenues to the industry and they might see themselves in those spaces. So it's great to hear how people have got there. And at the same time as starting Cameo, you've also set up Move Beyond Words. It's with busy, uh, years. <laughs> yeah, Exactly, <laughs> you're not slouching. <laughs> Which you've set up with Elizabeth Arifian. And I think the tagline for this initiative is envisaging a world that embraces dyslexia. Embraces dyslexia. (laughs) Typically, I couldn't read my own handwriting. (laughs) As we know, the world is terrible. But the dance world, one of the previous conversations we've had in the podcast series was with Darcy Bussell, who was talking about her experience of dyslexia, which I guess the generation before yours wasn't recognised at school, it must be common, but dance was that means of expression and where she could put all of those ideas and that uh, enthusiasm and energy that she was struggling to find a place for in her schoolwork. Is it quite common in dance? I suppose my bigger question is, is the dance world one that embraces dyslexia? I think so. I think anyone who is neurodivergent will naturally gravitate towards something practical, physical, expressive, because that's the way that their mind will thrive and where their skill sets will be harnessed. Having said that, you know, NASA actively seeks out people who have dyslexia because there are certain skill sets that are going to really thrive in that environment. So I do think there are a lot of neurodivergent people in so many different professions Darcy Bussell came on the Movie on Words podcast, actually, in our series one, and she was really fascinating in in talking about her experience and how dance has served her. And she said she wouldn't be who she is without having dyslexia. And that's really encouraging to anyone who's battling against their dyslexia. I always say you either can have a battle with it or you can have fun with it and play, but, you know, acknowledge it. Because if you don't acknowledge it, it's more challenging because I've found out so much about myself in the past couple of years. Since being open about my dyslexia and meeting Liz, the co-founder of Move Beyond Words, we came together through the arts, through um, 
a support worker that we work with to apply for funding bids to ensure that, you know, any spelling mistakes are addressed or navigating a really complex website. All these sort of factors do come into play. And the support worker, Diana Roy, connected Liz and I together and was like, you're both in the arts. You're actually both specialising in dance. You've got quite similar experiences. Why don't you get together and have a chat? And so really Move Beyond Words was formed out of two people sharing experiences and being a support system for one another. And that's something that we wanted to create because, yes, I do think that a lot of people in the arts are neurodivergent and it is associated with academia. It's something not to neglect and open the conversation within, you know, we're in a studio space right now. And it's really important to acknowledge the complexities within that kind of environment. It could be anything like an audition where it's a naturally heightened environment. Anxiety levels will be probably through the roof naturally. And yes, if you are struggling with processing speeds, left from right, direction, no time to process um, choreography, it can be really challenging and actually you're showing your, your weaknesses before your strengths. And obviously an audition is a natural structure within our industry, so it's something we cannot change, but Move Beyond Words' mission is to support the individuals within that space to feel confident with saying that they have dyslexia, to know their needs and to maybe apply them before you even walk into the room or familiarise themselves with learning styles and methods um, to support them through that particular experience. And it could also be within a classroom. The same things apply. So, yeah, we actually have a workshop coming up which is really exciting, the first of hopefully many, <laughs> um, where we're looking at exactly that, supporting people with learning styles and methods that they need, um, sound healing to help with mental health and well-being. But also an aspect of the day is to show Unbox, which is a film that Liz and I made in lockdown, to look at dyslexia and how you can use something that's a part of you to fuel your practice and, and, and your work. And to just open up a dialogue and, and support system for artists at whatever point they are in their career, because this could really feel prevalent if you're training and about to embark on a professional career. But you could also be a professional dancer and be in auditions. And if you're a freelancer, it's a pretty solo experience anyway. So for anyone who also thinks this might help me just feel more confident and grasp the skills that I need to put in the toolbox and and overall you're so much more confident this is all based on our own experience so we know and we've spoken to people within the industry and conducted research and spoken to choreographers and casting directors because they are the responders too and what can they do to make the environment supportive it could be anything like sharing repertoire that is going to happen within the audition the next day 24 hours before I think anyone would really benefit from that so just if you approach everything with an accessible approach then naturally all beings are going to be like yeah this actually is great (laughs) and as you've alluded to there especially as a freelance artist you have to be your own support system because you're not getting that from an institution you don't have (laughs) that team how easy have you found that over the course of your career? Oh, it's challenging. (laughs) I won't lie to you. I think I do really enjoy being freelance. 
especially being neurodivergent. People with dyslexia, they have an entrepreneurial feel and you see them being able to manage themselves quite well because you put in these structures for yourself and if you need to take an hour longer on something, you may need that time. So freelance actually does work for me. But at the beginning, it's a real challenge because you want to pitch for work, you kind of have to put certain things in place to ensure that you can live. So I sort of have this revolving process where I'm always applying for funding and pitching and um, also pitching for commissions because if you put your eggs all in one basket, it's really worrying, you know. Obviously, as people become more established, it becomes easier because actually they're like, can you wait in line? I'm booked up for five years. But at this point, especially after a pandemic, where everything's sort of been a bit off kilter, I think a lot of people are in this position of trying to find a system that works for them. And I did at the beginning of going freelance, I was a waitress, but I was exhausted, I was absolutely exhausted. And actually, it distracted me. So I was like, okay, this is not sustainable. So I needed to find like a sustainable way to be freelance. That's an aspect of Cameo, to have these really open conversations about living, about being an artist, a sustainable artist, that hopefully people will really respond to because it's important to discuss these things. It shouldn't be hidden away. You know, not that it's a secret, but it's just really important to see how people, like what works for them and think, okay, would that work for me? And try and do something similar. That's been my process so far. And I think the worst thing is is taking on too much and spreading yourself too thinly. You know, we've all probably been there. <laughs> Where... Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really important, especially if you're creating something. You, you can have a file of ideas, but then you have to have energy and capacity to do those and execute those things. That's the other really important thing that I've, I've done over the past couple of years is really give myself kind of timelines that are not unrealistic. <laughs> <laughs> I feel we shouldn't take up any more of your time because we're going to do terrible things to the, the schedule of work. <laughs> but one last question, the one in the podcast title, is why does dance matter to you? Such a big question. Dance matters to me because it gave me a voice. And why I'm passionate about movement and about dance in particular is because I think it connects people. Whether that's physically being in a space and dancing with other people or watching something that resonates with you or a reflection or mirror reflection of society that you can then discuss afterwards, that is connection. So for me, yeah, dance matters because it connects people. Charlotte, what a joy. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank it's you. Been such a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. A dance career is never easy, and it's only more complicated when you have to generate so much of it yourself. It's really inspiring to hear Charlotte talk about making dance and making things happen. If you're inspired to tell us what you thought of this episode, we'd love to hear from you. I'm at Mr. David Jays on Twitter and the RAD is at RAD headquarters. And you can find more about Charlotte's work in our show notes. And if you're inspired to subscribe, like or review the podcast, we'd be very chuffed. Our guest today was Charlotte Edmonds. 
Why Dance Matters is made by the RAD team of Celia Moran, Melanie Murphy and Charlie Strachan and our artwork is by Bex Glendinning. And our producer, Sarah Miles, is someone else who makes things happen. I'm David Jays. Take care and see you soon.